Gracious Father, we come before you and just rest in you and we wait. We wait for the coming of Jesus. We acknowledge that we may fall asleep, but when we open our eyes, we will see him. And that by God's providence and wisdom that maybe Maybe he comes sooner during our lifetime. And so we praise you and we thank you for the great hope that we have and we wait on Jesus. And Father, I pray for our country and leaders of our country. Lord, may wisdom shower down upon them. May eyes be opened and ears be opened to hear you and submit to you because God you save and you are good and gracious and merciful and that is lavished all over the place so we would pray that for our own leaders we pray for governors and rulers and city managers we pray that um, there would be um, opportunity for uh, the Christians in our city to be able to share the love of Jesus. I pray that you would give us great insight and wisdom and humility to be able to do so, Father. That we would be willing and able, because you have opened and freed the heart to do so, to, to see those moments that you would give us so that we can share the good news of the gospel with all kinds of peoples right where we live. I am reminded after even being in the text of scripture in Mark 5 of the demon-possessed man who came out of the tombs and because of what Jesus did, because of what your son did, Father, that the city people were able to see him sitting in his right mind and clothed because mercy had been shown to him. And we pray for that powerful and mighty work that you do in people to awaken hearts, dead hearts like Lazarus who would come out of the tomb because Jesus called and he comes. So make hearts alive. We pray, God, we plead, we beg for our city. We know that you use means. You use the church to do so, Father, spreading the good news that you have given. And now we also pray for our time together that your word would just cause us to, to turn away from sin wherever we need to turn away from sin, where we would submit wherever we need to submit, where we would acknowledge the brokenness and weakness in us and every temptation that there lies in us to try to earn our way to you in some wicked way. Because it is wicked and disobedient for us to think that we can earn our way with you, Father. Because it is only through the Son that we have salvation. And so we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, I want to just remind us and remind my own heart that it is God who changes hearts and he can do so mightily and powerfully. And we want to plead with God for those opportunities. 
We want to we plead with you, brothers and sisters, to be in Christian community, just like Jonathan had, had just pleaded with you and, and so winsomely just invited you in. We totally understand that there are seasons of life where it is very difficult to get in Christian community, to, come, to join something called the branch group. We, we totally understand that, man, there are seasons where it is difficult. And we also acknowledge and know that it is so helpful for us. We need Christian community. We need to be next to other Christian brothers and sisters because in the midst of those opportunities, discipleship takes place. When we are having conversations, going over the word, um, um, sharing with one another, praying with one another, eating food with one another, in those moments there is amazing discipleship that takes place. And so we want to encourage you, invite you, even though it is difficult and sometimes, many times, maybe, maybe every week, inconvenient to be in a branch group. And can I just say this? It's inconvenient to me, for me as well. As much as I love people, there are times where I'm just like, just tired. Or I'm just thinking, I'm going to drink coffee and I'm probably going to stare at the ceiling until one in the morning if I do. I mean, all those things. But then I have time with you and I eat with you and I, and I talk with you and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am lifted up. I, my heart is encouraged. I'm I've been sharpened by someone. And so we want to invite you into that. Be in a branch group. And if, and if you can't do that right now, we'll just, we need to figure out a way to, for you to be in Christian community some way because we, we want that for you. We want you to know God's love in that way. If you will turn your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll flip a few more pages to a very small letter called Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Man, if, as we have been going through this, the bell that Paul the Apostle has been ringing over and over and over and over, and it's okay, as it definitely has filled like he's been ringing that bell over and over for me as well, the bell of you cannot earn your way to salvation. It is by grace, through faith, through Jesus Christ alone, period. And if you try to earn your way, you are in wickedness. If I may just sort of summarize what Paul has been saying. But he has been pleading and begging these people to forsake um, this teaching that has crept into the church and is creating, creating great harm among the people of God. When you first hear about the division that it is causing, it just seems like not that big a deal. Circumcision. If you want to be a Christian, the Judaizers were saying, then you need to be circumcised and embrace this teaching. And if you do not, you're not a real Christian. Such a small thing, right? And yet Paul attacks it with great vigor. Listen to the word of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, Paul says. For freedom, Christ has set us free from the bondage, from the yoke of the slavery that is of the past. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 
if I may repeat it, the way this looked, the way this took shape was some people came down from Jerusalem and infected the Christians that were gathering, these Gentile Christians, these Galatian people that had come out of a pagan world and not necessarily a Jewish world. And the people that were infecting them and bringing harm to them were people that came out of a Jewish culture that loved the Word of God and were passionate about the Word of God and would say they loved God but were ruled by the slavery of thinking they can earn their way to God through their works. And so, if we may look again, just very briefly, the way this ended up looking like was at a dinner table when the Jews came forward and Paul and Peter was in the midst who would normally eat with these Gentile Christians, withdrew from them because if he were to eat with them, the thought was among the Judaizers, that he would be infected by their sin by eating with them because they were not circumcised or not submitting to the law. And Paul is saying that these people are in bondage and they are trying to get you into this bondage as well. And he says, you have been set free in Christ from these things, from the Mosaic ritual law. And then he says this, this is what we need to know. He tells them, stand firm. Do not, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So the first thing we need to know is that we need to stand firm and not submit to that yoke of slavery to that legalism or any type of legalism. If something smells like legalism, legalism, then we need to kind of sniff and snort at it just a little bit and find out if it's wrong and, kind of, and, re, and, and not submit to it and stand firm against it. Why? Why is it such a big deal that Paul wants us to stand firm and not submit to that? I mean, it's not that big a deal. It was just circumcision. I mean, in our context, people do that all the time, don't they? Are these people in sin because they have done this? Why is Paul making such a big deal of this? Look at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and here's one of the reasons why we need to stand firm against it, that Christ will be of no advantage to you, Paul says. This is terrifying news. That if we submit to some works-based way of being saved, submitting to circumcision, for example, then Christ, according to Paul, according to the Word of God, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again in verse 3, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So why is it such a big deal? Number one, Christ would be of no advantage to you. That would mean no covering by the blood of Jesus for me if I try to earn my way to heaven. That would mean, secondly, that I would be required to um, keep the obligated to keep the entire law. That's the second issue. Now, here is the great problem that you and I both know that we are utterly, it is utterly impossible to keep the law. Every one of us has broken it this week in some way. Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, 
on and on and on. And if we are going to submit to this one part, Paul has argued up to this point, then we need to be able to keep the entire thing, and we are not able to. The point of the good news of the gospel is that there is someone who lived it perfectly for us when we could not live it perfectly ourselves, namely Jesus. And that's why he says what he says. Hear it again. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify, secondly, again, to every man who accepts circumcision, he doesn't want them to, but if you do, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And brothers and sisters, we are not able to do so. There's another reason he points out. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. This third piece, okay? So why is it such an important, why is it so important that we would stand firm and resist legalism of all kinds, okay? We need to put our, put our legalistic nose and just be cautious and then, and then resist it for these reasons. Christ would be no advantage to you, that you would have to keep the entire law. And thirdly, he takes it up another step. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, I need to explain something here because I want you to understand something about what Paul is saying and understand something about what Paul is not saying. Now, we know very clearly that the Scripture overall and also with what Paul says, the entire Bible and what Jesus says and what Paul says, Paul affirms everything that Jesus says. Paul affirms everything that the Scripture says. He is not opposed to what Jesus says. When you listen to people and they say, hey, Paul says this, but Jesus says this, you need to know like, that's, that, those categories really don't exist. Like This is the Word of God. And Paul is not opposed to Jesus, nor Jesus is opposed, opposed to Paul. Paul. Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is, this is God-breathed, this, this is the scriptures. So he's not opposed to Jesus. But I need to know this, that, that he is not saying that a real, true believer can lose their salvation. Now, I realize in a room this size that there are people that have a lot of different ideas about what that means. There are some Christians that believe that, uh, that a true Christian could actually lose their salvation, but that is not what the Scripture teaches, and that is not what Paul teaches. So he is making a very, very strong point. You are, in verse 4, severed from Christ. It, it is an incredibly big deal. You who would be justified, notice the language, if you are thinking that you will be made right by God, by your good works, that's the whole justification, is being made right with God by the law, you have fallen away from grace. He is not saying that Christians, true believers of true faith in Christ, can fall away from Christ. And I realize categorically for some that might be difficult. You see, the scripture teaches over and over again, through, when you look at the sovereignty of God and the grace of God and in his electing grace, that you will see that God actually performs um, something miraculous so that someone, comes, someone can even come to faith. And that is actually dealt with in the next verse. So I'm going to go to the next verse and then come back and address this a little bit more. He says this, For... 
through, this, this is the question of can someone lose their salvation? Can a true brother in faith or sister in faith lose their salvation? And Paul is not saying they could. What he is making, he's making the strong point is, hey, there's some people among you that they, they have this different gospel. They are cut off. For through the Spirit, look at what it says, for through the Spirit, in verse 5, by faith, this is an action of God himself. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For through the Spirit, in other words, an act of the Holy Spirit to change the heart. Did you know that faith is a gift as well? For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly, he doesn't say, now does he say the word, we eagerly work for the hope of righteousness? Does he say that we eagerly labor? He does not say that. He actually says we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That is interesting language that Paul uses there. And it affirms everything that he says up to this point in other letters and also affirms everything that Jesus says in the whole of Scripture itself. That we do something very interesting and unique among Christianity that we are, even though we are saved, right? Just like when, when Jesus said and called out to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out, and the dead man who was stinky comes walking out of the tomb because Jesus had called him and awakened him in the same way we were called out. And what's unique about Christianity among all the religions of the world is that we are not working our way towards salvation, which is the teaching of all the other religions of the world, by the way, but we are actually waiting for the hope of righteousness. So even though he has cleansed us of our sin, it is finished, all those things, we are made right with God, and he is sanctifying us, even though we know we are not perfect, and we sin, and we make mistakes, and, and God is, it's, we're, we are waiting for that day of perfection that is to come but isn't yet we all know it and feel it and experience it we do things we don't want to do brothers and sisters right he says for we hope for we wait for the hope of righteousness and what paul is saying is that this is an act of the spirit like by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness which is totally contrary to the legalists who are trying to work their way and so when he says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, he is not talking to you who are of true faith in Jesus Christ. When I was a very young person and I was very new to faith, and there's a lot of things that happen. When you're new to faith in Jesus and God awakens you and you come to know him, there's a lot of muck and messiness to be undone. I mean, there's a lot, of, not only are there behaviors and all that kind of stuff, I mean, those, I don't want to belittle those behaviors, sin is sin, and it needs to be repented of, but there is something bigger going on. God is transforming the heart, and now we know him, and he is going to clean us up along the way. So as you interact with newer Christians, there's a lot of messiness. I don't know that if you're we're aware of this at all, but if you hang out with people that are new to faith, they do some interesting things. And so do we. We say interesting things. We believe interesting things. We do interesting things that we shouldn't do, that should be undone from us. But with newer Christians, it is certainly the same. But God is changing that in them. And I want you to be aware, as we put ourselves in a missional posture among people that do not know Jesus, the reason, we, look, one of the reasons you started church is because you want to reach lost people. 
And there are people in our city that desperately do not know Jesus, and we want them to know Jesus. And if you hang, I don't want you to be shocked when you hang out with them and they do things or say things that are contrary to the Bible. And go, oh. Maybe in your heart we go, oh dang, God's got to clean that one up. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. But we don't, I mean, like, we've got to kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I know, I know you think that. Um, yeah, don't, let's keep coming. Keep coming. Let's talk about that. For Christ Jesus, in, for in Christ Jesus, in verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You know, there's an interesting thing. I mean, here, here can, here's where there's a temptation and the messiness of the potential for legalism. People can read things in the Bible and they say, Paul said, man, circumcision, bad, so we don't do that, and if any Christian does, they must be in sin. That, that's the rationale for some people. They, they read things or hear certain things and think, oh, dude, okay, look, the Bible said don't, okay, it says don't do that. Paul's like really pushing, it must be sin. But look at what Paul says here. He's getting at the heart of the issue. It isn't simply just the behavior of circumcision. He says here in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither their circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The issue is so much deeper than this behavior that they're trying to get them to do. The issue is a heart issue that they're trying to get at. Well, these legalizers are trying to get at the hearts of these people. Well, do this, and then you'll be right with God. But Paul knows that that will totally wreak havoc on what they understand about grace and faith in Jesus. And then according to him, and according to scriptures, that both of those things, the, the positive or the negative version of that, means nothing. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, he says. And then there's another issue coming up that he's going to call them to. He says, guys, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who did this? Now, Paul is a very interesting guy. Now, he he's like, sounds like a total sports fanatic. I mean, when you listen to him, when you read him, excuse me, there is a lot of sports analogies and illustrations going on. Apparently, he loves, his favorite sport is wrestling. Secondly, is probably running. And he says this, he says, you, are, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, I don't know if you've watched many races or participated in many races, but there are some things when people are running around a track very rapidly, there are some things that can happen that can really trip them up, and I have seen some interesting things happen on the track. Maybe you have as well. I have seen guys and gals, I mean, just blazing around the track, and one person sort of like cuts over when they're not supposed to, or they kind of think they're you know, right in front of them, and it just like blows up like three people. <laughs> Paul says here, you were running well. What jumped in front of you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, do you see the irony going on in this passage? The irony is this, that he's saying, hey, look, if you submit to the legalism that's going on from these other people, 
It is hindering you from obeying the truth. The irony is the people that are trying to push their legalism think that they are in obedience to God. And Paul is saying that those people are actually disobedient to God, but if you cave into their legalism and you do not stand firm, then you are disobeying God. Legalism seems good to the legalist, and it seems like obedience to God, when in actuality, it is disobedience to God. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then he goes on further. Listen to what he says about the ideas coming from the legalists. And, when, and he's telling the people of God, I, you need to stand firm and to resist this stuff. It is so dangerous for you guys. It is so horrific. And then he says this in verse 8. This persuasion, he calls it, is not from who? God. He says it's not from him who calls you. And I love that Paul uses that word. When Paul uses this word throughout the Bible, he talks about him just like Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. God called you out and me out of the death that we were in to know Jesus. We were once dead and then made alive by God. This is not from him, God, who calls you. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that there, everything in the world, there, all ideas are not good ideas. There are bad ideas. No matter how nice we want to be to people, no matter what education system we were brought up in, where we heard teachers that were trying to be nice to us, that's a great idea. When it was a horrific idea, but they were being sweet or kind or whatever. But maybe that isn't kind. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from God. And then he goes on to say this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now we know something about leaven that goes into bread. Some of us who bake. Some of us who dabble in baking and have messed things up pretty well. Leaven is spoken of positively and negatively throughout the Bible. Okay? One of the things we know about leaven, and when you mix it into the lump, is that it actually invades or infects the entire lump so that the bread will rise. Let me explain this in a very proper, modern way that we all understand it, especially myself. Imagine you are at a dinner table at one of your favorite places to eat, and you get a lovely glass of ice and Coke, delicious Coke. And you happen to be at the table enjoying this delicious Coke, and maybe you are sharing that delicious iced Coke with someone in your family, perhaps a son. And on this particular occasion, you run out because you're sharing this delicious Coke, and they take it to the fountain of the different drinks, and he brings it back. And you go to taste that drink, and it tastes nothing like Coke at all, but it tastes like the poison of five other drinks all put into one drink together. Imagine a world where that is you, and you're having that drink, and there might be hints of Coke in there, but there are other things thrown in there. You see, because a little leaven invades the whole thing. A little bit of orange drink or Dr. Pepper or whatever, it poisons the Coke. And what Paul is saying here is this, is that a little bit of this bad idea from this individual or individuals clustered together can actually impact the entire church and harm it for the worst. 
And one of the things that he's going to address, not in this particular section, but in the section to come, is the conflict that comes out of this leaven that invades. The leaven that invades the church brings harm on the church. This legalism that creeps in causes fights and dissensions, and Paul deals with the question of, what are you to do with this? How are you to handle this? And he actually handles that in the very next section of the passage, which we're not going to deal with today. One of the things that happens is not only the difficulty of people not understanding what salvation is, but it actually can destroy the church itself. And it was destroying this church. He says, you were running well, in verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It affects all of you. It damages all of you. It can start a fight and then division, and then it just breaks the church apart. And then he says this, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, excuse me, that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. In other words, he's waiting for God's judgment for this, this uh, divider. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, which, which he doesn't, but there was a time when he did, before he knew Christ, why am I still being persecuted? He needs them to understand, I do not preach circumcision. In, in fact, I'm persecuted by these legalizers because I preach the opposite of that. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, which it's very offensive to them because he's preaching Christ and not works. And then he closes with this. I wish those who were unsettled, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And when you first hear this, you might think, wow, Paul, that's kind of offensive <laughs> from my particular context and time and 2,000 years removed, etc. It's kind of a weird thing to say or for us to read. But let me, let me help you understand this, that what he's saying here is not, it is offensive to them, but it is not crass. He is not sinful in any way when he says this. In fact, the context in which he is in and the people that came out of the pagan background in which had, they had come out of would have had certain practices like this. But what Paul is doing is he is equating these legalizers with the paganism that is going on in their culture. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying they are like the pagans, even though they're trying to honor God by pulling people into legalism. So ultimately, legalism is paganism. Pagan, and it's sinful. And he's speaking right into their culture, right there, and he's saying, hey, look, you buy into this, you know, I, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. And that's what Paul is saying. So know this, brothers and sisters. The dangers of legalism are very, are very real. We're heading towards the end of this particular letter, and, and man, he, Paul has just been ringing this bell over and over and over. There should be an overwhelming sense that, you know what, we cannot earn our way to heaven, that it is by Christ and him alone, through faith in Jesus, I can't add to my salvation, I cannot work for my salvation. In fact, I wait on the Lord. And he has just said that over and over and over with great concern. And what we need to know is that, that those, those legalistic ideas that can come, they came to the church then, they can impact us now. And the way they will hinder us is probably with our evangelism, because that's normally what it attacks. I mean, when Peter wouldn't eat with these new Christians, 
wasn't the legalism impacting his relationships with other people that were new converts? Isn't that fascinating? So be aware, brothers and sisters, of those things that would hinder not only our understanding of the free grace that God has given, but also our missional posture. In fact, I would, I would argue that, that legalism just basically completely would take us off of mission and away from reaching people that do not know Jesus and bring us in a holy huddle where we would forget them altogether. And so Paul is calling us to stand firm against legalism, to beware of it of our, in our own hearts, to know how dangerous it is, and submit to what he has done by grace. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would just do amazing application in our hearts, God. Change us, refine us, help us. We pray this. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.